0: You should have at the uh, front part of your table towards the towards the aisle there uh, a handout for today's lesson let me offer to those who were not here last week a schedule for both <coughs> for both uh, the entire series that we're doing on spiritual success and and then also one just for this uh, this quarter Mike oh you got one yeah you got it yeah actually it's you better take this and this updated that one's got some okay some old stuff on there anybody else here didn't get one last week all by yourself today huh i gave you two there one for eric All right. We'll have more of these in the, uh, in the foyer if you need them or if someone else is looking for one. You have made it to the second session called Spiritual Success, and we are talking about membership matters. What's the importance of membership? And also um, um, why we should be members, what our church is all about. Last week we looked at an overview of this entire uh, series And so on this sheet here, you'll see we're on the very first line there, Membership Matters. This will be a six-week class. And then uh, we'll go from there. So this week, we're going to talk about the history of our church. How did we get to this place in history? How did Ambassador Baptist get here? In order for us to understand a history of Ambassador Baptist Church, we need to understand a little bit more about baptists in general and if we want to find out more about baptists we got to find out about protestants And if we want to find out about protestants we got to find out what they protested against what was the purpose of the reformation and then uh, if we want to find out about that we want to see why they were reforming what was it that was the problem and if there were problems where did they come from so we'll go all the way back to the beginning and get a history of the church and that's why i call it there on the front of your sheet there from john the baptist to ambassador baptist so the first thing that we need to look at is uh... the church itself obviously in the first century we had uh... a vital healthy growing church one that was obviously trying to be infiltrated with error but at the same time we had apostles and um disciples who were being very careful to make sure that that they were remaining true to the faith that they were not allowing in any doctrinal error and the first thing i want to talk about is the power and importance of the word of god one of the basic truths that the bible reveals is that god creates he convicts he conforms with the word of god think about how god put everything into existence Okay, obviously it wasn't with the Bible itself, but it was with his word, his spoken word. How how does God bring a believer to Jesus Christ? It's with his word. The word of God. How does a how does God get a person to be transformed into the image of Christ? It's through the power of the word. And so the word is is very important. And it's the most supreme thing, it is important in the New Testament, and it obviously is important today. The best way that we can see the Word of God revealed is through what or whom? Jesus Christ. He was the Word, John 1.14 says, that He became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember, He's called the Word there. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the best representation of what God has to say and who god is but in and so god saves us through this perfect word jesus christ but you know he doesn't save us as individuals where we can just go to our homes and we got our bible and we're all set does he he saves us to a community he saves us to community of believers and that's why the church is very important the church is not man's idea by the way it was not the apostles who started the church. It was Jesus Christ, wasn't it? He said, on this rock I will build my church, Matthew 16:18. And it was Jesus that commissioned the church. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So Christ commissions his church, but not only that, he also builds his church through the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, let's turn there and we'll read this passage to see what a church is like. And, and this uh, lesson will not be primarily um, exegetical, meaning it will not be coming primarily from the Scriptures. It will be coming from our history. But in order to get a, a start for where we are as a church, we need to go all the way back to the very first church. And that was the church at Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, and we'll see what kind of things that they did as a body of believers. Verse 42 says, Acts two forty-two: They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continually with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Jesus is the one who builds his church and he does it through this he he builds his people through a community called the church or an assembly and jesus is the one who rules his church through his word and that's why we need to make at the center of our local church the bible the word of god that is the most important thing in our church And so, because Jesus was the one who set up the church and the one who sustains the church, the early church was very careful about maintaining the apostles' writings. They wanted to make sure that they did not allow uh, false doctrine to come in. But it wasn't long, if you know church history, it wasn't long before error started to creep in, was it? And uh, the Apostle Paul warned that there will be people even in your own midst who will rise up and they will lead people away from the faith. So you've got to be careful. You've got to step up and watch out. In fact, even in the Scriptures, we have examples of churches that tolerated perverse sexual immorality even within their own church, within their own church among their own church members. Another church embraced Gnostic heresies or pre-Gnostic heresies. Another one showed gross favoritism to the wealthy and powerful and so you know these churches as the church at corinth the church at Colossae, and and obviously the church that james was referring to in his book and and obviously these problems with error didn't get any better over time did they they actually got worse the farther they were removed from uh, jesus Christ's initial establishment of a of the church, the farther they they moved away from the the true doctrine of the faith, and so we have a history that goes from the death of the apostles all the way till fifth, <coughs> excuse me, till fifteen hundred. <coughs> and while we do have a spread of the church geographically, which is amazing, right? It just started here in this these small cities in Asia Minor and then it spread to the whole world we do have it spreading geographically but what what happens in addition to it spreading geographically it also spreads in its understanding of the scripture it moves farther away from the true doctrine of the faith faith and so throughout um, history you see there on your sheet the different types of early christian heresies that popped up now this uh, started in the first century, but obviously you see there the Pelagians all the way down to the middle of the fifth century. I'll let you read those on your own, during your own time, but but obviously these things are not anything new. Uh, Solomon said, "There's nothing new under the sun," and and uh, so these are some heresies that came up within the church, but have to be guarded against. And they weren't really creating new doctrines. They weren't coming up with brand new things. They were basically taking what the Scripture taught and they were twisting it just a little bit. And that's the, that's the, the lie of the devil. That's the danger of, of Satan is that he takes things that are real truth and he twists it just a little bit to make it error. And that makes it all the more difficult to, to, uh, to notice. And so the early church was very careful about staying true to the faith. And, um, and so then you find in, in the Acts also that, that Stephen was persecuted because of his faith. And so the early church martyrs illustrate for us what it means basically to be a genuine disciple of Christ. One who is willing to affirm that Jesus is Lord even to the point of what? Even to the point of death. <coughs> and so then um that leads us to constantine this is perhaps there's ha- perhaps no more important figure in the early church history than constantine we find him in th- uh, 311 in AD and in 312 he associated himself with christianity and he had supposedly this vision of a cross in the sky and it said in this sign conquer and that was his message that i need to basically unify the whole Roman Empire into one religion. And so, because he had the authority, he decided that he would make it the official religion of the empire. Christianity would be the official religion of the empire. And so, this brought an end to persecution, but it also brought a lot of worldliness. It, it basically turned the church into something like a Roman uh, Empire, they started adopting roman practices and obviously you know anytime that the state and the church marry there's always problems and so we find that there's a growth of monarchial bishops and ultimately the one who we, we even have this representative today who is who is supposedly a direct representative of christ who is that representative in religious in other religious circles the pope right He supposedly is this guy who who represents God himself. And in his word, they call it ex cathedra, he basically speaks on behalf of God. So they take the scriptures and what the Pope says, and that's supposed to be the truth. So over the next many centuries, various people reacted to this sort of um, state church-run idea. And the effects, unfortunately, were short-lived because when you went up against the religion you were ultimately going up against the empire and as a result you were put down and put away and just as a side note um, we will be going through this more in more detail as you'll see on your your handout here we got a whole section on church history for 13 weeks here in about the middle of the page so if you're feverishly writing notes you uh, you don't have to at this point this is just an overview um so while these popes were trying to consolidate their power and authority, um, not everyone recognized this these popes as authority. And in 1054, what we have is the split of the Eastern and Western Orthodox religions. And out of those grew uh, 15 families of churches, including the Russian and the Greek Orthodox churches. <coughs> and so both in the, the church in the East and in the West... The distortion of this authority grew over the centuries and this led all the way up to the 1500s where we find the reformation and the problem was is that this uh, state-run church they thought that they could really forgive original sin they thought that they could take what was sinful in your life and remove it what ways does let's think about the catholic church what ways do they think that they can take away the sin of a person confession sacraments baptism penance right all these different prayers and uh so obviously they they had all these prerequisites for receiving grace from god and so they basically believed that they could dispense god's grace that they were the holders of god's grace and because they were that they could dispense it to whomever they pleased but you had to follow their rules right and so um, you had all these practices of indulgences, and um, uh, <coughs> obviously the idea of purgatory came up, came about, and it was this these practices and belief that that really sparked the Reformation. And as you know, Martin Luther is the the key uh, person at the center of the Reformation. Martin Luther was a monk in Wittenberg, Germany, and he had long struggled with the question of how he could be accepted by God. How could he, a sinner, be accepted by God? And after much struggle in his soul, the Lord brought him to a biblical understanding. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And verse 17. This is the verse that the Holy Spirit used to enlighten Martin Luther about the truth of the gospel. Because he had been, he had been steeped in this understanding of, of what the Catholic religion, what the state-run church was, was proposing. And obviously, since he was a monk, he was constantly studying these things. And so we find in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, "...for in it the righteousness of God is revealed..." From faith to faith, as it is written, "But the righteous man shall live by faith." You see, Luther always understood that that this meant this righteousness here that he's talking, that Paul is talking about, was his righteousness, was Luther's righteousness, and so it was by his own righteousness that he would be able to live by faith. But after studying the Psalms and Romans, the Lord showed him that Paul wasn't talking about his own personal righteousness. Whose righteousness is this verse referring to? Jesus Christ. It was, the right, it was an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of himself. And that is what Luther realized. And at that point, he, he gave his, his, um, his heart to Christ. He, he um, responded in repentance and faith. Recognizing that he had not been a believer and that the only way that he had the ability to believe was if Jesus Christ's payment was applied to him. If the wrath that Martin Luther deserved was put upon Jesus Christ when Jesus died on the cross and that the life that Jesus lived, a perfect life, that that perfection was applied to Martin Luther's account. And as a result, he called this, this a sweet exchange between himself and the Lord, that Christ bore his sins, that Christ died as a substitute in his place, removing God's wrath. And for the first time in his life, Luther knew the peace that comes through the gospel, knowing that he was truly forgiven of his sins. And so it came as no little surprise that he was outraged at the church for trying to basically sell grace, try to sell it. Because that wasn't something that they they had authority over. It was only Jesus Christ that could dispense grace. But Luther didn't set out to start a new denomination. We obviously have the Lutheran religion. We think, oh, he just went out and started. No, he tried to reform it. That's why we call it the Reformation. He tried to reform the Catholic religion. And so he, he, um, he pursued to do that, and he went up, and obviously you know that on October thirty first, 1517, he nailed 95 theses to the door at, um, at Wittenberg Church there. And basically these are just debating points. He wanted to set up a debate with these religious leaders, and he wanted to be able to show them from the Scriptures that what they were doing was wrong. But the Church of Rome had had nothing to do with it. In fact, instead of having the debate with them, they put him on trial at the Diet of Worms in April 1521, and they told him that he needed to withdraw his books and all of his teaching from uh, the the monastery. And so Luther's reply um, (coughs) that really embraced the call of a true Christian was this. He said, Unless I am convinced by testimonies of the Scriptures or by clear arguments that I am in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves, I will not withdraw. For I am subject to the Scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Amen. That was the response of Martin Luther. And at, and, and for this stand, Luther was ev- eventually condemned by Rome. Fine, if you're not going to agree with this, we're going to put you aside. You're out of here. But we're, what Rome, Rome con- ultimately condemned was not Luther himself as the innovator or the teacher What they were condemning really was the biblical gospel, wasn't it? And so for what Luther affirmed, that Scripture was to be the final authority, not the Pope, the church had to dispense of him. But Luther was not the first or the only person that was having problems with the Roman Catholic Church, was he? We know that there are other reformers during this time separate from him, not knowing that The incidents that were taking place, we know of John Zwingli in Zurich and then John Calvin in Geneva. And even before them, we have throughout the Middle Ages, we have John Wycliffe in the 14th century and John Huss in the 15th century. And so God was using these men, and specifically Luther, in a unique way to recover the faithful preaching and the focus on the authority of the Scriptures. And that's where it needed to be. And so that that leads us to these different strands of the Protestant religion. by the way, Protestant simply means a member of any or several denominations denying the universal authority of the Pope and affirming the Reformation principles of justification by faith alone, recognizing the priesthood of all believers and the primacy of the Bible. So obviously, Baptists would fall into these, but there's several other religions that would also fall into this Protestant. Um, title, and that would be there are the Lu- the Lutherans who obviously tried to follow what Luther had to say. They had a biblical understanding of the gospel, but they still maintained these weird ideas with regard to, particularly the Lord's Supper. They believed that the the um, the element there, the bread and the juice, actually became the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And um, so. So obviously there's still some issues there, and Luther still was struggling with a lot of these things, but you can imagine how difficult it was for him growing up and steeped in that, those uh, type of traditions. There are also the Anabaptists, another, um, another offshoot of the Protestant religion. And their main distinctive was that they rejected infant baptism. And so we would obviously agree with them, but they also questioned original sin. They didn't really think that you know, a person was born in sin. They rejected civil authority. They embraced pacifism and even in some extreme cases polygamy and anarchy. So um, although it sounds like Baptists may have come from Anabaptists, we'll see later that they did not. There were also the Reformed churches which include the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Church of England. They also embraced free grace from God. They understood God's sovereignty and salvation. They had a Protestant view of baptism and the Lord's Supper and they recognized God's God's ongoing work in making a believer holy. But it was out of this last group, these Reformed churches, that came the Baptists. And in 1608 some in the church of england such as john smith were rejecting infant baptism and by the middle of the 17th century you had a growing number of congregationalists in england who actually formed what we call now the baptist churches and it is out of this stream that we came that that came the baptist churches in america not out of the anabaptist stream And so while that was going on in England, while these churches were forming in England, you also had in America a man by the name of Roger Williams that formed the first Baptist church in America, and that was in Providence, Rhode Island in 1639. And so these late 17th and 18th century Baptists shared a uh, a Reformed confessional understanding of the faith. And this is the statement that sums it up it says a sovereign god saves us not through our own good works or even our own wise choice but through his grace realized in christ's work on the cross and toward the late 18th century baptists started growing especially in america because of their emphasis on personal conversion the simplicity of the gospel informal worship and when I say informal worship, I'm not talking about sandals and shorts. I mean informal compared to the liturgical worship of the Catholics and the Lutherans, right? Is more informal because it wasn't based on all these forms and these rituals that we were doing. It's based on uh, uh, tr- putting the focus on God where it belongs. And so at the end of the 19th century, when this church was being founded, Christianity encountered another formidable threat. And that was the rise of theological liberalism. And this was most prominent in the early 1900s. After theological liberalism spread around the world and it matured, it basically started to adopt these ideas that the virgin birth wasn't really a virgin birth. And they started to pull away from the idea that Jesus Christ was really God and and uh they didn't really believe his miracles or his bodily resurrection so as you can see they they removed their focus from the centrality and the authority of the word of god they're saying even though the bible says that jesus was born of a virgin we are saying that that cannot be and so their authority is coming from outside of the bible and this was this became very prominent in many uh churches not just uh other denominations, but, but even in Baptist churches as well. And by, the, by 1930, almost every Protestant denomination in America had been captured by or greatly influenced by theological liberalism. They denied the authority of scriptures. Now, I'm not saying every single uh, church did this, but I'm saying it had infiltrated every type of Protestant church, the Baptists, the Lutherans, the Anabaptists, the Congregationalists, all of them, in some some part of their denomination had adopted liberalism. And so it was in the 1930s and 40s that we find the Fundamentalists uh, standing up and wanting to preserve the Orthodox Christianity by withdrawing withdrawing from an increasingly secular and irreligious, irreligious culture. And that brings us to our church. Ambassador Baptist Church, you'll see on the back of your sheet there a, um, a um, timeline there. In April of 1939, a group of concerned believers met in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Luther to consider, the, to consider the leading of the Holy Spirit in starting an independent fundamental Baptist church in the city of Royal Oak. Six couples attended the meeting, and after prayer they decided that they would hold their first service at the Old Congregation Church on 13 Mile Road between Rochester and Main Street. This building was owned at the time by a women's club of Royal Oak, and it could be rented for, guess how much, for one day? $8. 1939, $8. And so they met in 1939 for the purpose of starting the church, and they they first called this church the Oak Missionary Baptist Church. And it was... Organized with 11 charter members. Uh, pastor Calvin was the, the very first pastor. He was elected by unanim- unanimous vote to become the pastor of the church. And Thomas Luther was the church clerk. So not a bad start at all, huh? having Luther and, and Calvin as your, your leaders. In March of 1941, a committee was formed to secure lots on Rochester Road and erect a building. And then in 1942, the first unit of the building was completed and services were held pastor calvin was the pastor until 1956 when he resigned to form another church and then in november of that year the church called pastor john hunter any have any or were any of you here when pastor hunter was the pastor mary Mary, Mary i think mary was here during pastor calvin too wasn't she towards the end of it i believe so She's seen it all. Uh, During Dr. Hunter's ministry, the the name of the church changed to Ambassador Baptist Church and Bible Institute. And following uh, Dr. Hunter in the pastor, it was Pastor Ed Boone, who who shepherded the flock from 1965 to 1967. And then in 1968, we have Pastor Jack Richard, and he ministered until 1973. Anybody here during that time? You were here that the, your first pastor? Okay. Pastor Richard. Okay. So how old are you, Mike? No. Uh, so uh, then in, uh, <laughs> under his ministry, the building underwent, underwent an extensive facelift outside and inside the auditorium. And in April <coughs> of 1973, the church voted to call Pastor McLaughlin. And under his leadership, he paid off the debts that that they had accumulated because of this huge remodeling project in 1972. Um, And then after 25 years of service, Pastor McLaughlin resigned in 1998. How many of you were here during Pastor McLaughlin's? Okay, many of you. Good. So obviously he was the longest tenured pastor at this church. Um, Much of what he has done has remained and... um, He has really built upon a solid foundation that was uh, started by Luther and Calvin all those years ago. After McLaughlin was uh, Pastor James Lawler. He came in 99 and was here for a year. And during his time, the nursery and beginner departments were completely remodeled. And then in 2000, we uh, have the church voting to call Pastor Talbert. And in 2003, new pews were installed and the foyer was remodeled. And then um, we also had the handicap ramp and the restroom added in 2006. And then um, a couple years ago, we had some flooring and ceiling installed in the fellowship hall. So uh, that brings us to today. And so our goal, like we read in Acts chapter 2, is that we become or that we remain as a community of believers who are committed to the apostles teaching to the breaking of bread which refers to the lord's supper to baptism uh, to prayer and by the grace of god we're committed to that same gospel that started all those centuries ago with the gospel of jesus christ and he is the same yesterday today and forever we serve the same christ that started the church back in the first century and we want to maintain and continue and build upon what He has done. And obviously, He is doing that work, but we are His servants in doing that. So that gives us a little bit of a history of, of where we came from. It gives you a better idea, hopefully, of why we are Baptist. We'll, we'll actually have a whole class here, if you look on your sheet, we have a whole class on why, why, why become a Baptist, what's so special about being a Baptist. We'll have a whole class on that. But next week, we're going to be answering the question, why are we here? Or for those of you who are are not members of our church, why should we join a church? So we'll give some reasons for that. uh, The assignment here for next week is to pray that God will uphold this body of believers and that He will build upon what these great men have started over the past 70 years. It's exciting to see how God has taken a solid uh, group of believers from the very beginning, has um, instructed them or given them the desire to stand upon solid biblical principles. And then from there, we've seen that that doctrine has been maintained over these 70 years. And I think that speaks a lot to both the leaders and the members of this church over all those all, all those years. And so I think it's exciting to see that God does still care about this church, and He still has a plan for this church. And so let's do what we can to continue to uh, be God's uh, help in building this church. Let's bow together for a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed to the main service. Lord, we're thankful for the great history that we can look back upon. Um, we are grateful for the the group of believers that started uh, with this vision 70 years ago and wanted to see um, your leading your hand in building a church in Royal Oak, and we're grateful for their commitment to your truth. We pray that we would uh, continue the commitment that they had started 70 years ago and help us to um, not be complete excuse me, not be complacent in our understanding of the Scriptures, in our display of love for other believers. Help us to grow in our love and our faith, and we will give you the praise for it, uh, because you deserve it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.